Good morning, my name's Michael and I'd like to read to us today Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judea, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judea, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice for food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into, the ser- into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. 
In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. The second Bible reading, if you want to turn it up while the children are going out, is from Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Accept those whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will stand before we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ has died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads us to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning again. Uh, the man who trained me um, when I was training as a youth minister, John Kidson, 
had a number of sort of sayings that have stayed with me. And one of them was this, that the cracks in your personality and character as a young man will become yawning ravines as you get older unless you deal with them. So he would encourage us to face and deal with our various personal uh, hang-ups, etc. The cracks become ravines. Or to use negatively that lovely positive image from the song, uh, big things from little things grow. And that certainly is true, and I've talked to people who have worked in old people's ministry that they say that you really can see that. Some people uh, just, if they don't work on the areas of weakness and selfishness, it can become uglier when we get older. And what Paul's dealing with here in chapter 14 is some of the cracks that were clearly there in the church in Rome and that they needed to be dealt with and understood and properly dealt with lest they in the end tear the place to pieces. Now, I used to think the book of Romans uh, finished badly. Um, I thought um, it, you know, it reached this massive high point in chapter 12. You know, I entreat you on the, with the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, having your minds renewed, maybe get to the end of chapter 12, maybe th- chapter 13 we looked at last week on, on uh, our relationship to the government. But certainly once you got to chapter 14, I thought, come on, mate, just finish up and get out. As I say, like lots of sermons, they just seem to go on. But of course, as I've got a little bit wiser, as I've got older, I now realise that chapter 14 are wonderfully important, very relevant to us today, and I'm very glad that God wrote it. I have, as I shared with you, come to realise that when I look at a part of the Bible that I think is unnecessary, somewhat silly, uh, even, dare I think it, wrong, that is not a reflection on the Word of God at all. It's entirely a reflection on me and my culture. And so I think you'll find um, Romans 14 and 15 uh, very relevant to your life in various moments. So let's have a look at it together. Um, In case you're about to go to sleep, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 and verse 7 of chapter 15 give you the bread of the sandwich. Verse 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. Chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So the call he's got here to these Christians is to welcome each other, to embrace each other, to receive each other, rather than allow gaps, alienation and distancing to happen over a number of things that could happen here. So we're going to look at three things. Firstly, we are not answerable to each other. I'm not answerable to you, you are not answerable to me. Secondly, but we are responsible for each other. Not answerable, but we are responsible to care for each other. And thirdly, the other you that's um, hiding within and finishes off this passage for us. All right, let's have a look at this first thing. Just We're going to travel fairly quickly. If you've got your Bible, that will be a great help. Uh, Firstly, we are not answerable to each other. Listen to what he says. Accept the one, he says, who is weak, whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. In chapter 15, verse 1, he says this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. So he looks at the congregation and he says that there are two groups, and he uses these words for them, the weak 
and the strong. He sees himself amongst the strong. But if you see yourself amongst the strong, that's not an easy place to be. Because he, in no point does he ask the weak to change, even though they do, in a sense, need to grow up. But he does call on the strong to change. Right? So you might think, oh, I'm amongst the strong. Good. Brace yourself. There's work for the strong to do. So we're not, we're not answerable to each other in this division. What is this thing about the weak and the strong? What's it to do with? And it doesn't mean, for example, that the weak have got weak faith or they're not passionate about Jesus. They are passionate. In fact, they'll often be the most passionate. But here he says, let's go on and see what he's talking about. Verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak, eat only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. At this point you're going, I know Ian, this is a very relevant issue to my life. Those who are vegetarians, those who aren't. We've got people in our church who are vegetarians for very good reasons. I've got relatives who are, well, they're vegans at home and vegetarians when they go out because they don't want to be too much of a nuisance uh, when they go out. But the reasons for the vegetarianism here have got nothing to do with the reasons why people nowadays become vegetarians. They're they're just an accidental overlap. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be shown wrong on that afterwards if you like. What's going with these vegetarians? Now, we get a lot of help with this when you go to 1 Corinthians 8, and because it's Sunday, and you're probably going to spend some more time reading the Bible, although that's questionable, isn't it, when we get to the question of days. But um, I would very strongly encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 8. It will really help you to make sure that you've understood Romans 14. If I was speaking from 1 Corinthians 8, I'd be saying go home and read uh, Romans 14, because they, they both are on the same topic. And it's to do with the importance and the division that was growing over the question of what people ate. Now, as far as we can tell, and 1 Corinthians 8 makes it a little bit clearer, the reason why people were not eating meat, why some of the Christians were saying, I'm going to be a vegetarian, was probably uh, two factors. One is for Jewish, Christ- Jewish people who become Christians, and perhaps sometimes for some of those who weren't Jews and had been involved in sacrificial worship. Here's how it works. As you may have heard in the Old Testament reading in Daniel... Daniel and the boys get captured in what would have been an absolutely shattering experience. It's not like being, us being captured here and being taken across to Auckland or something like that. Um, it, it, to, to be taken from the city of God, Jerusalem, to Babylon, which was this huge city that suddenly the great Jerusalem looked pathetic and it's full of heathen and pagan gods. The re, Daniel is quite happy, he and his mates, to have their names changed which I would have thought would have been the issue they'd have taken a stand on because the names they're given go from names that reference back to Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the gods of Babylon. So they actually are willing to take the names that have got these heathen gods, but they make a stand on food. They, they don't want to eat the king's food. And it's the meat is the problem. Now, as it turns out, in the ancient world, if you lived in a city, pig... Was, supposed, was, was the most common meat that was eaten. They tended not to eat anywhere near as much meat as we do, but if they ate meat, it was very often from the pig because it was a very easy animal to, to grow, either in, on a farm or in your own home. 
well, not in your home, near your home. Whereas beef and sheep were much more expensive. They were very festival. So, so what happened is that the meat was all muddled together and the Jews felt that the meat of the pig should not be, they shouldn't go anywhere near it. It was unclean. It wasn't kosher. It was not acceptable. It wasn't fit was the word kosher. So they tended to say often if they were devout, okay, we're not going to eat any meat because in the local butcher shop, then it's not run by Jewish people. It'll have all sorts of stuff in it. So better to not eat meat at all rather than to eat meat that's been infected by, you know, in a religious sense by being caught up with pig. Uh, so that a lot of Jews in Rome, or not a lot, but a significant number of Jews in Rome at the time who were very religious were vegetarians just because they couldn't be sure whether or not the meat had been infected spiritually. The other reason was, which comes up in 1 Corinthians 8, is that most of the meat that you could buy in any city was bought at butchers that were connected to the temple. Almost all the meat that you would be able to buy had, come, had been used in the temple and then was sold through the butcher shop. So in Rome, for example, we know from letters that have survived from that period that if I was having a party and I was a sort of a standard Roman pagan, I would often have it at a restaurant and the restaurants were beside the temple because that's where the fresh meat was. So when a lot of these people got to know Jesus and discovered the true God, they didn't want to, they, they said, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with the stuff that used to be part of my old religious background. And there was some terrible stuff used to go on in those temples. Um, you know, quite shocking stuff would go on as part of the worship. So they would say, no, I don't want anything to do with that meat. So the, the reason why people were not eating meat and were vegetarian was because they were taking God really, really seriously. And the problem for the weak Christians is that they would look at other Christians who weren't doing that and think, you guys aren't serious, are you? You don't care about the fact that this meat could be dodgy. Why are they called weak? Well, they're called weak because, as Paul will say here in Romans and again in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that all things belong to God. And as he says in 1 Corinthians, the idols like Venus or whatever, the other gods, etc., they're not even real. They don't even exist. So what you're dealing with is just meat. So the strong, he says, know this. So the apostle says this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. He says elsewhere, I'm convinced in verse 14, I'm convinced, fully persuaded in the Lord God, that nothing is unclean in itself. And one of the things it says here and in 1 Corinthians 8 is something which is quite shocking, which is that God and holiness and spirituality has nothing to do with what you eat. Now, we kind of think, well, of course, because we live in a culture that's been heavily influenced by Christianity. But most religions of the world have to be, to be serious about your religion is to be serious about what foods you don't eat. Or perhaps there's periods of, of compulsory fasting. But if you're brought up as a Hindu, you will not eat cow. Goat, maybe. Sheep, maybe. Right? But you won't eat cow because it's too sacred. And we've got members of our church who, who have, been, have become Christian from a Hindu background, their families, and they don't eat cow, not because they, they personally know they can't, but out of respect for their parents who were very concerned when they became Christian that they not start eating the sacred animals. So that out of... But, as you know, with Islam, a, a, a visceral um, despising of the pig. Jews also won't eat the pig. So that there's all sorts of food stuff. And you, those of you who've read 
Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, some of those sort of noisy atheists, will know that both of them have a chapter on food stuff. What, you know, what, what's the hang-up with the pig? I was disappointed. Well, I was disappointed by a number of things. I think I must sort of write a book as an atheist because I think I could do a better serious attack than those guys did. Uh, but um, they didn't even have a footnote acknowledging the fact that Christianity is utterly unique in this, has no interest Eat what you like because food doesn't matter. As Jesus says, it goes into the mouth, through the system and out to the toilet. Jesus says, it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it is what comes out of our heart that makes us unclean. That is utterly revolutionary. Muhammad disagrees with it. All the great Hindu teachers disagree with it. So Paul knows that to be true, but there are some people who become Christians who haven't kind of caught up to that yet. And even if they can sort of articulate it, Years from childhood of being taught to make these sacrifices and to not play with these things has meant they just can't bring bring themselves to eat it. And that's why they're described as weak. They're not weak in passion. And the problem for people who've got these sorts of things, and there are many other areas where Christians will, will take a position that something shouldn't be done for good reason, and then they will be judgmental of other Christians who disagree with them. Now, there are some things where the Bible clearly says when you become a Christian, because you're following Jesus, you will change in this area, this area, and this area. But food ain't one of them. So in chapter 13, as you looked last week in Romans, he, he, he goes and talks about, he mentions some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be greedy and covet. And then in chapter 13, just two verses before this chapter here, he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. So drunkenness is not a question of Christian liberty. It's plain, ordinary sin. It's one of the reasons I didn't want to become a Christian, because I had to stop. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery, that they're areas of the use of our sexuality, which are just plain sin. Every culture will want to argue with what the Bible says in different areas, These are not things of indifference and not in dissension and jealousy, nastiness in human relationships. There are certain things that are very clearly said that's that's not on for the Christian. But there's a whole bunch of things where Christians have disagreed uh, and one of them was on the question of food. Some Christians might now say, well, if you really love what God has made, you won't. They'll, They'll argue a spiritual argument for vegetarianism, but it's not a scriptural thing. The Bible simply doesn't call on Christians to no longer enjoy you know, steaks, although you might decide to not eat it for the sake of the environment. There's all sorts of reasons why you might do it, but they're not the sort of things that are binding on other Christians. But the problem with people who get all upset about these areas and the reason they're called weak is because they haven't worked through what the scriptures say, that all the creation belongs to God uh, and that Jesus Christ alone sets you up with God rather than these other religious rituals. And so that the, the, the weak Christian, what he calls the weak Christian, will be judgmental. That's their sin. So a couple of times he says, uh, so right, right up at verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? See, if I'm the serious-minded Christian who says, I ain't going to eat meat because it's all been messed up with pig and stuff like that, or whatever, my tendency will be to look at people who disagree with me and think that, I'm not even sure if they, do they take this thing seriously? Why aren't they doing the obvious thing and restraining themselves from various things? 
But the other Christians who, who get the fact that, that they're free to eat all this stuff and free to do all sorts of other things like that, they're liable to look down and hold in the word he uses here is contempt. The sort of legal, what they would call the legalists. Right? So they, they, they're the, the sins on both ends that can break up the Christian community here. So that's his concern. But what he says is, you're not answerable to each other in this. You are answerable, he says very clearly, to God. Don't judge another person's servant. You may have come to this conclusion, but don't then pass your particular conclusions, no matter how coherent they might be. So I've got friends, for example, who don't drink any alcohol. And they don't do it for all sorts of good reasons, partly because in their original family, the family line is a massive amount of damage done through alcohol. One of them was a wonderful counsellor and she said the amount of domestic violence that was tied up with alcohol was huge. She just didn't feel that she or her family should ever spend a cent that helped this industry to go on. But these Christians were mature enough not to then judge others who disagreed with them. But that's not true of all Christians. Some Christians will come to a conviction for themselves and then feel that anyone else who's a serious-minded Christian. So they will tend to judge those who disagree with them. Now, over the years, all sorts of areas have fallen into that. For example, dancing. Not so much. It might seem funny, but there have been times when various serious-minded Christians that no serious-minded Christian would ever dance. And the joke is that the, what is it, the praying knee and the dancing foot should not be on the same limb. And it was because dancing was sort of, you know, often highly sexually charged and things like that. And, and one thing led to another. I mean, I had a Christian friend who decided as about an 18-year-old that she would not dance at parties. She never laid on others because she said she found loud music, lights, handsome men. She just found she got too sexually aroused. So she said, I'm not going to do that. She never laid that on anyone else. So, but for her, that was a wise decision, she decided. Now, there are all sorts of things where people then lay it on others. Smoking's one. Now, I know the arguments for the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it's funny, a number of people have had the experience when they go particularly to, say, a Dutch Reformed church. I don't know if it's still the case, but a guy I worked with for years said he was a very passionate um, evangelical, but as, when you became a Christian, no one smoked. Right? Um, what is it? He who smoketh in this world burneth in the next. That, that's, that's not actually a Bible verse, but it's kind of fun. But, um, but he was there on a weekend away with his Dutch Reformed Church from Sydney, very earnest Christians. And um, you know, in John's background, if you're a Christian, you stop smoking pretty quickly or hit it. He said he gets the Bible open, they've sung a few hymns, and out come the pipes. Not the women, but the blokes. They, the women... I don't know, did they knit? I don't know what they did. But the blokes, and he said, the room's full of smoke. And John's struggling because he, he, in his sort of part of the Christian world, no decent Christian would do that. But that's a thing, you can argue the case. But if you begin to say, no, Christian, if you do that, you're not a Christian, welcome to the world of being the weak. There are other things, aren't there? Alcohol is one that people differ on. The use of Sunday, because he's going to go and talk and we won't have much time to look at it. Some people have, they view various days as special. That's probably the Jewish religious calendar he's talking about. You know, continuing to celebrate some of the key moments of God's great work. But, you know, we, a person like me, I take Good Friday really seriously. I take Easter really seriously. I take Christmas really seriously. I'm ambivalent about Sunday. I think the one in seven is a very, it's a, it's a pre-sin sort of thing that God gets up to. But see... 
what he says is, if I judge people who don't celebrate Good Friday, and frankly there are churches in Canberra, some of you know, some of you have come from them, they do not celebrate Christmas. Is there something wrong with them? No. It's a thing of indifference. They make a choice. But for us to judge each other or to patronise each other, that's where the sin comes in. We are not answerable to each other. I need to press on. But we are answerable, of course, to God. Secondly, we are responsible for each other. And this is where Christianity is going to be sort of counter our culture in many ways. It says, you may have the freedom and the right to do all sorts of things, things that are indifferent. But you may not use your freedom to hurt others. He says in verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Now that should be an alarm, shouldn't you? If there's anything where God says, if you do this, you're not acting in love, it's got to be wrong, hasn't it? Right? As, Andrew, as we looked last week, love is the great mark of the Christian. To say that you're doing something that is actually hurting other people must get your attention. He goes on further and says, do not by your eating destroy other people. Again, 1 Corinthians 8 will help us with that. I think what he means with that is that if I believe I can eat meat that's perhaps been sacrificed to idols, etc., and I'm with a Christian friend who doesn't believe that, and they see me and sort of inspired by my example, they eat as well what they think they shouldn't. And it begins to mess with their conscience, which is a very sensitive and important thing that God has given to us. And then perhaps they begin to feel guilty and then they begin to think, I don't think I'm really serious about being Christian. In some way or other, the apostle says, if I use my freedom in a way that other people follow and they still think it's wrong, because he's very clear, if they think it's wrong, it's wrong. If God moves them on, they may change. But I'm to be very careful. Uh, I'm not to eat meat, as he says in in 1 Corinthians 8. I'll never eat meat again if it's going to hurt people. There are more important things than enjoying a fine steak or a shoulder of lamb even. You know, but, um, and that's love. So we are responsible for each other to care for each other. At that point, I am your servant and my freedoms get limited. So when I have friends who come around who don't drink alcohol, I would be a fool to, to bring out alcohol. Although some of them, interesting, they don't drink, but they'll bring a bottle of wine with them because they're quite happy. But I still feel a bit weird um, because they don't for good reason. Let me just share with you a great quote from the great Martin Luther. It's, it's one of those things he says that takes a little while to get the hang of it. Uh, he, in a, one of his earliest books that he published after the gospel had finally, you know, the, the eyes had become open, he saw about the grace of God and how you didn't have to earn your way to heaven by millions of religious rituals. He wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian. It's a great read. You can find it on the net. And he says this, the Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. Right? He says, I'm a, I'm a child of God, fully, totally, perfectly forgiven through Jesus' death, wonderfully free. I don't have to earn my way to heaven by not eating this and not doing this, going to this religious festival. It's all been done by Jesus. We're free sons and daughters of God. But then he goes on and says, the Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So the liberty is very important. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free and do not let yourself be dragged again into slavery. Five verses later, he says, what matters is the faith that works by love. 
In the end, the Bible will always prioritise love of neighbour to your own freedoms. So that's what, that's what Luther's saying here. The Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. The Christian is the most dutiful servant of all. And I've been at churches where people have held a view that the church was mistaken the entire time they were there on fairly important issues, but not issues, not make or break issues ultimately. I didn't know that they didn't like some of the stuff they were doing in that church until they left. Not because they sent an angry letter, I just somehow or other discovered it. But they, they would just say, okay, this is the, the church is doing something that I, I it's not kind of what I'd like to do. But they just were, were humble servants and really made a big difference for the good in that church. We are responsible for each other to care for each other. Um, there's another quote here, which I think is, um, I'm not quite sure where this comes from. It gets attributed to St. Augustine from Africa. It gets also attributed to some of the early Lutherans. Uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That there are some things that, as Christians, that this is essential to being a Christian. And I've got a, a bit of paper you might like to take by a guy called Dr. Albert Moller, who's a, a pretty good thinker and, and, and writer in the United States. And he's got a triage thing, which you might like to take. I've summarised it and abbreviated it. Uh, but there's also the original article is at the bottom if you want to look it up. And it'll just give you a sort of a bit of a guidance that he's worked out on some things that are essential, some things that are important, and other things that are entirely um, we can go easy with. It's the sort of thing we might talk over. And I think, as I say in that, I think it's, it takes maturity sometimes to work out in what category are things. Generally speaking, people who are trying to liberalise or progress Christianity will try to move things out of the things that are essential into the things that are optional. It's a standard thing Christians have been playing that game for, well, 2,000 years. And yet the Apostle Paul, the same man who's the great, the great fighter for Christian liberty, says, do not be deceived. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that he lists a series of sins, uh, which includes some of the ones, the more contemporarily cool ones. But he says that, so that there, there are certain things that stay in that essential thing. I'd encourage you to take and read it. There's a lot of wisdom in that sheet, not in my summary of it, but in what uh, Moller says. So there's the two things, the first things. Where we're not answerable to each other. We're answerable to our Lord, the one who owns us. But we are responsible to care for each other and not to cause distress and not to cause even to destroy the other. Any questions briefly before we move on? Uh, so if, if I just to make sure I've heard, is this only about how we treat Christians? What about how we accept and treat people who don't follow Christ? This is purely about Christians. Um, so I was going to use the example, for example, of when I have uh, a meal out with, with Muslim friends. I, I, to be honest, I don't have any Muslim friends, I think, in Canberra. I certainly had plenty in Sydney. And I would, of course, never argue the pig knuckle or the pork belly. And I would never drink wine with them. Because that would, that, that, their assumption is that if, if they can't do it, if you were serious about your religion, you wouldn't do it. So I, I wouldn't do that. But that's for different reasons. The Bible's quite clear that, um, that it's not our job to judge non-Christians. But it's also, you know, we're quite clearly allowed to express opinions in dialogue and discussion um, but I think you will probably act somewhat similar, that you will be warm and friendly even as you disagree. 
But one of the marks of our cultures, as I think you may have experienced, is in our culture now you, not, you can be as warm and as friendly and as gentle in a discussion and you will be hated and you'll be called a hater, etc. It's one of the weird, sad movements our culture's made. So it's almost impossible now to have a, a dialogue about some of the, the issues that our culture needs to dialogue about without you being labelled. Uh, is that in my sort of... But Paul's very clear, we're not, we're not the judges of, of our non-Christian friends. And he says, he says at one point, don't, don't hang with Christians who are doing some of the sins that are like clearly, you know, like you know, a Christian says they're Christian but say is committing adultery, having sex with someone they're not married to. Um, you know, you need to be careful of that friendship. But he says, I'm not, by, by any means, I'm not saying that about how you treat people in the world or you'd, you'd have to sort of live in a monastery. So, yeah. It's different, but it turns out to be somewhat similar. Uh, okay. Moving on to the last point. What happens, I think, when you find yourself in tension with a, with a Christian brother or sister and discussing some of these questions, should I, shouldn't I, etc.? You can, you can lose the, the massive unity that you have with these people. And part of the point of this whole passage is found, I think, in, in Romans 15, verse 6. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the, union of, the unity of Christian people... Right. really matters to Jesus, uh, as you find in John 17. It really matters that Christians stay united. And we learn to live well with the differences that there will be bubbling away in this church. Right? I mean, a, a simple example, baptism. Right? It, sitting, sitting here amongst the brothers, some of us will think it's perfectly right and proper that the baby of a Christian person gets, gets, gets the sign of the covenant, etc., uh, etc. Et there are others who think, no, perfectly appropriate that they be that we have a service of thanksgiving for the gift of the child and we devote the child to God and ask for prayer and I think as I've shared if Alice and I had had any children we'd have had to have a serious conflict of you know have an argument at that because we hold different views on it but I think we get on okay uh, we get to pray together etc now that's a that's a that's a not unimportant issue that Christians used to actually defellowship each other over a couple of hundred years ago but we've learned now it's not really in that order but I think this sheet will help with some of those, those questions. But the thing that's important that, that the apostle finishes up on is not just accept each other and if you're strong, put up with the weakness of others, not sneering at them or judging them or trying to lecture them, just putting up with where they're at and limit your freedom. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. The first 11 chapters of the book is all about how Christ and what Christ paid that he could love uh, we could be loved and accepted into the family of God. It's got this very powerful statement both here in 1 Corinthians 18. But to the strong, don't you do anything that will hurt those um, who, who differ for you, who, who you might say are theologically not as adept as you. Do not let your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. We can forget as we dialogue and argue about some of these things, that are legitimate things enough to lie to, we forget who am I talking to? I'm talking to someone who's in the family of God. I'm talking to someone for whom Christ died. This is the defining reality of you, isn't it? Who are you? 
Being Australian is piffle in terms of our identity. Being male or female is piffle. It's a part of who we are. You're a person for whom Christ died. You are of unbelievable worth to God. You're of great worth to the one person who really matters. And it's very important that when we dialogue, we don't forget this. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. So he goes back to the ancient sort of original idea. What does it mean to be a Christian? Follow Jesus. If that's how Jesus thinks, that's how we think. And Jesus is the great one of accepting us with all of our weaknesses and blind spots. I, I do recall um, I came out of Bible college a couple of years at Moore College. It was great fun. I, I got a job at a church at St Peter's Hornsby as a youth minister. Uh, as usual, I didn't do a great deal of background research. And I walked in for the first service, at 8 a.m. service, and I'm at the, near the front of the church, about to be introduced to the congregation. And, and down come in the middle of the aisle is, is, a, is people with a dirty, big, beautiful bit of wood with a cross on the top. There's a choir dressed up in ridiculous robes and they come down the front and, and, and then we get to the creed and they all f- face liturgical east, which I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing. And then when they got to the point about born of the Virgin Mary, they bowed, which I was incensed at. I think, well, if you're going to bow at the Virgin Mary, what are you going to do when you get to Jesus? You know, you're gonna... but, but of course, they weren't bowing to Mary. They told me when I asked, they were bearing, bowing to the incarnation. Still, I think, you can do that. What are you going to do with the cross? But anyhow, I'm there thinking, hang on, let me just go and check. I thought this was an Anglican church, but it was. I didn't realise how diverse the Anglican church could be. And over time, I began to have some tense discussions with a lady called Nola, whose dad had been the rector of the church a couple of years, a couple of, or a decade or two earlier. And then it it became obvious that we had serious disagreements, particularly when I got to preach, and she was not happy. And... um, uh, so I, I didn't take communion for a couple of months because I just could feel this unresolved tension. I thought, I've got to, you know, the Bible says you've got to be in love and charity with your neighbour. Uh, so I hadn't had a, even had a go at it. So one, one time they were doing the peace and they were walking around the church saying, peace, peace. And I went across to Noel. I said, Noel, I think you and I have got to talk. I haven't taken communion in a couple of months. And I'm not going to take it today. She said, why not? I said, because you and I are not at peace. It's quite obvious. And she looked very upset on my behalf. We had a cup of tea later that week. It was like, it was like a real cups and it was very classy. And, um, <laughs> but it was really interesting because we sit down to have this, what we thought was going to be a difficult conversation. He said, Ian, I think probably the difference is that you and I have a different understanding of what it is to be Christian. I said, could be. I said, so how would you define a Christian? She said, I think a Christian is someone who's been forgiven by God through Jesus' death and is trying to live like Jesus. I smiled and said, that is exactly the definition that we're using in the youth ministry. Forgiven, seeking to become like Jesus. And we we laughed and we had a nice chat. We just realised we had never thought about the, the deep unity that we had in Jesus. And we were obsessed with trivial stuff like, you know, what do you do? How do you dress? How do you speak? You know, what, all those sorts of things. Now, they're not completely trivial. But they are trivial compared to the fact that we were brothers and sisters together. We both loved Jesus. We both were desperate for his forgiveness. And we just allowed the differences to become the only thing that we talked about. This passage is saying, don't, for the goodness sake, don't do that. So in the middle of chapter 14, he says, he's talking about, you know, you're not answerable to each other in this way. He says, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. 
For this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that we might, he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. So we need to remember when we're not really answerable to each other in that way, we may have differences, but we are responsible to love and to care for each other, the great mark of the Christian, that really it's Jesus that binds us together. And, and the apostle starts and ends right back there where this letter has started. Uh, some of you will know of a man called Archdeacon Richardson. Um, I don't know how old he was when he died, but it was, the announcement was made this, this week of his death. When I first met him, I didn't like him and he didn't like me. He was wrong, I was right, I was entirely lovable. But um, he, was, he was given the nasty job of overseeing guys when they get out of theological college to make us into good Anglicans. And um, we just found ourselves arguing about all sorts of issues. And for about a year, it was not very friendly. We were polite because we were trying to be Christians. Um, but then we, we had a discussion once about Jesus, just over a cup of tea, and ab about using the language from the Song of Solomon, the love language, in, in reference to it. It's a thing some Christians do and some don't. And we both agreed that sometimes it was helpful to, to, to use the song. I was probably biblically wrong, but I found it helpful. And suddenly we realised that we both loved Jesus. And we suddenly, it was, like, it was like I think we saw each other for the first time. And so that when, when I heard that he died, I, I felt a real sense of loss because he was a really good man. Um, but I had, we'd met arguing and it took us a while before we went down to the real deep union that God had given to us. He's the man who got this compliment and had a lady leaving his church at Manly when he was there. And uh, he said it was the nicest compliment he was ever given, but it was given as a point of critique. She said, Reverend Richardson, I'm leaving this church. I'm sick of it. He said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Why are you leaving? He said, because you're obsessed. He said, oh, what am I obsessed with? You're obsessed with Jesus. <laughs> he, said it was the, he said it was the loveliest compliment he was ever given. Right? Now, see, she has heard what's at the heart of it. And what this passage is saying, brothers and sisters, it's our relationship with Christ Right. This is the key thing that must stay central. We will define all sorts of things. This little leaflet I think you'll find helpful, uh, giving us some guidance on what level some of these areas are. But we're not answerable to each other. We are responsible to love each other and to limit our freedom at times uh, to make it possible for us to live well together. But the real you in all this is the, is the great you of Jesus. He is the one who's brought us to himself. He is the one who has accepted the unacceptable, me, and here's the model for me loving you and you loving each other. So really, Romans 14, I'm glad he didn't stop at Romans 13. <laughs> it's got good stuff. Well, brothers and sisters, do read 1 Corinthians 8 today if you can. It will, it will cast a lot of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the God of love. Thank you that we haven't got any secrets from you. Um, we have all sorts of blind spots, and yet you love us. And you, you send your son to die for us. We're so precious to you. Help us, Lord, never to forget that, but to rejoice in that and to live and love each other in such a way that will bring glory and honour to you. Uh, we pray that we would be doers of this great call to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we have the final send-off and blessing, let me lead us in prayer. It's a brief prayer. That There's these things called collects that the Anglican Church has, a prayer set for every week. And this just seemed a very appropriate prayer that was set for this week that I'd lead us. We prayed it at eight. I thought we might as well pray it here at ten. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We ask that you keep your household, the church, steadfast in faith and in love, that through your guidance and protection, we may be kept free from all petty and uncharitable divisions, and that we may devoutly serve you in good works to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Brothers and sisters, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen.